welcome to Relative Digressions. I'm Renna. I'm Felicia. And today we're going to be talking about the fifth Doctor serial, The Awakening. Yeah, uh, season 21, Peter Davison. He's travelling with Tegan and Turlo, who are ostensibly both from contemporary Earth, although Turlo's backstory is he's actually an alien in exile from a war, but that's not relevant here. So... They come to the village of Little Hodgecombe because Tegan wants to visit her grandfather. But the village of Little Hodgecombe is going through a period of war games, not the Patrick Troughton epic regeneration serial, but a military reenactment. And the reenactors have become... They they don't... like They know that they're from contemporary Earth. They don't think that they are the historical figures but they're becoming obsessed with reenacting it as if it was like real stakes. Somebody's going to get killed. They're clearly not in their right minds. When they land the TARDIS in the basement of a rickety old church, they see what appears to be a figure from the 17th century, which is the period that the enactors are reenacting their war game from. So there's clearly some sort of time shenanigans at play. And on top of that, they quickly discover that Tegan's grandfather, who is the town historian, has disappeared. D- to an extent, the episode then plays out as a series of captures and escapes, although it's more compelling than that makes it sound because there's this real sense of a madness that's heightening and sweeping through the town. The Doctor tracks this to a crack in the wall of the church, prefiguring Matt Smith by about 30 years. I think we've got a whole discussion about the way in which I feel this whole episode is very Matt Smith. And this is only a, a two-part episode, which is quite uncommon for the time. But which makes it about the length of uh, one episode of Modern Who. Yeah, quite. So at the end of the first episode, the Doctor pulls away this crack in the wall of the church to reveal the malice, which is thought to be a local superstition, now revealed to in fact be, in classic Doctor Who fashion, an alien from outer space. So Will Chandler is this 17th century urchin figure who the Doctor finds in the church, and he believes is a mental projection um, pulled through time. It it later transpires that, in fact, the Malice has had the ability to pull Will Chandler physically into the modern day. Will Chandler identifies the Malice as a god of war, but the Doctor has found this metal, mined by the Terraleptals, which is a weird continuity nod back to the Visitation, which tells him that clearly this is an alien entity that has come to Earth on a probe, is the vanguard to an invasion. But one thing that Will does say about the Malice as a god of war is that where the Malice goes, violence is aggravated, wars become more dangerous, more bloody, and that clearly appears to be what's going on in the village. The second episode then revolves around the fact that Sir George Hutchinson, who is the figure at the head of the war games, has captured Tegan and wants to use her as his May Queen in a classic Wicker Man-style parochial village superstition. Again, I, I think there's going to be a whole discussion here about the influences on this episode, and one of those is obviously the Wicker Man. 
what is worse, this will coincide with the final battle of the war games, which the Doctor and his sort of erstwhile local companion, the school teacher Jane, realise is not going to be a reenactment anymore. But for it to provide enough sort of warlike energy for the malice to feed on will be an actual slaughter. The ending of the story then slips a little bit into techno babble. They go to the TARDIS, the Doctor plays around with the console a bit to siphon off the Malice's psychic energy. The crew becomes split with the Doctor, Jane, Tegan, barricaded inside the TARDIS where the Malice has now been able to manifest itself as its powers grow. As a lizard. Turlo, meanwhile, has been separated with Tegan's grandfather, who has been kept locked up because he knows what's going on. He, in fact, first discovered the Malice and warned Sir George about it, and that is why Sir George has enacted the war games. Sir George wants the Malice to succeed because he's been seduced by the Malice. He's, he's clearly... I think there's an implication that Sir George has inherently a certain warlike tendency that makes him a good victim. And he's locked Tegan's grandfather away, but Turlo, I guess because Turlo is younger and more sprightly, is just able to bash the door down, which makes a bit of a mockery of that part of the plot, but whatever. They're unguarded, they escape, they rescue the Doctor and co, and it seems like everything has sort of resolved itself. But the malice in a last-ditch sort of act of vengeance conjures cavalier projections, but who have every bit the same amount of power as physical living entities to kill. Roundheads, I think. I can never remember which one's which. Well, the roundheads are the ones with roundheads, and the cavaliers are the ones with the good hair. Yes, okay, sorry, roundheads. In a, in a quite a bleak turn, which is not uncommon for the era... Will, the urchin, uh, throws Hutchinson to the Malice whilst the Doctor is trying to talk him down. And the Doctor is succeeding, it seems. Well, there's also the bit where just before that, um, one of the reenactors gets decapitated. It's actually surprisingly gory, and you see actual blood, which is quite unusual. So without Sir George to sustain the Malice's grip on this time period... The Malice realises it's failed. It needed Sir George's sort of warlike mind to focus its energies through. And now that Sir George is dead, it, it just sort of gives up. And in a last sort of fickle act of vengeance, it just tears down the church, tears down everything around it. The Tardis crew sprint out of the exploding church to safety and they all congregate in the TARDIS and have a ha-ha-ha-ha-ha jokey ending, which is quite incongruous. I, I quite like the ending. I, oh, there's a nice sort of thing, because the Doctor, the Tegan's like, well, I came to spend some time with my grandfather, and the, there's this nice dialogue about the Doctor kind of going, oh, they drink tea here. Will, Will, of course, being from the 17th century, doesn't know what tea is. A noxious brew. Oh, yeah, he calls it a noxious brew, and he's like, I rather like it. End credit. <laughs> My general impressions on the episode, then. I like it. I think I think this is what I might call, and this is in no way in terms of an insult, very solid B-grade Doctor Who. Is this amazing? Not really, but it absolutely does kind of everything a pretty good Doctor Who episode, in my view, should do. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that to an extent. I would say it's better than B-grade, personally. I really, I, like, I'm a big fan of the story, but what I would say is that if you said, what's a story I can just shove in front of someone and go, this is Doctor Who, 
this is a good example of that. Yeah, no, true. But it's not midnight, do you know what I mean? But actually, in many ways, I think it is dishonest to show people those really amazing, but often slightly non-archetypal episodes of Doctor Who. To an extent, that is why we have landed on this story. Um, so so you said you wanted a horror story, and actually the weird thing is, after the horror-heavy Tom Baker era, there's very little horror in the Davison era. But also, I was sidestepping around doing all of the really big classic stories first. I mean, I, I, you know, I think this is very good Doctor Who. There are flaws of it, which we'll, I'm sure we'll pick apart. Um, I really love, you didn't talk much about it, but the malice looks in, in the church wall. It's a massive head. Actually, on the preview image of the episode in Britbox, I'd shown a vision of what I assumed was a mask, but that's because I didn't really appreciate the scale. It, it, it's massive. It's like the face is the size of a person. It's, it's, you'd think it would be slightly goofy, but it's not at all. It's properly sinister. The malice is also quite... It has exactly the sense that some LARP props do, which is, I think, objectively, if you saw them up close, you'd think, out, out of character and outside of the context, you'd think that looks a bit hokey. But in context, that's not how it feels. I've actually seen the malice in person. It's it's literally terrifying. Okay, right, fine. So, I mean, I mean, in fact, I am looking at the thing here, it's called Making the Malice, and when it's out, out of the wall, it actually looks worse. Uh, so, yeah, that, that is just a horrific prop. It, it, it's genuinely, like, it's huge. Even on screen, you, you just don't get a sense of how big that thing is. It, it's just massive. And they did a, such a good job on the expression. It looks so intelligent. Yes, exactly. I, I, it would look worse with a CGI as well. Yeah. The, the practical effects really work really well, especially with the smoke coming through. And the, adjust, the adjustable eyes as well. Yes, this episode looks amazing. Like everything in this episode looks amazing, and the malice when I was a child genuinely terrified me. Not not to mention that when I was a kid, I used to have a recurring nightmare about Nightmare with a K, the TV series. There was a big head that appeared out of a wall in Nightmare, the TV series, and I had nightmares about it coming out of my wall. And then I watched The Awakening, where a big head comes out of a wall. Yeah, there's something about the grotesqueness of it. I mean, as you say, it's almost... It, it literally is a grotesque in the architectural sense. There's a lovely screenshot, which is, it's the scene with Mr. Hutchinson at the end, where he's confronting them, and then the malice is just there over his shoulder. And that's very much it does. It's not an active monster who won't wander around in a rubber suit, but in keeping with its role actually in the story, it's just a deeply sinister presence. And it just does that really well. It's this sort of slightly reptilian, green-eyed face. It's probably like, ah. And when it when he pulls it out of the wall, it's a proper... I mean, given we looked at Time Lash, which also has a revelation where people pull it out of the wall, but then it's just a slightly gormless picture of Pertwee. Uh, let's come back to that Time Lash comparison, because I think that a lot of the villain acting in this is from the Paul Darrow school and the episode is better for it. There is a line which I think is very much sort of in the same vein as save your breath for the time lash, Doctor. Which is, you speak treason fluently. Yes, that is a lovely little exchange and actually gave me a real sense of the fifth Doctor. It is a, it's a great Doctor moment. It's just like... For, to say he's only actually saying one word, the way he shouts it back as well, in a kind of like throwing it in his face. Yes, exactly. Another Darrow-esque line that I really enjoy is, as the local magistrate, I shall find myself quite innocent. I like that. And it's nice because it shows you the power that he has. 
Yeah, unlike Time Lash, they're not just hilariously sort of brilliant, quotable lines. They're doing character work. Yeah, it absolutely works very well. It's not really clear what power Sir Hutchinson... I mean, he's a local magistrate, and you get the impression that in a very English village sort of way, he... Obviously, we are in democratic 1980s Britain, but also he runs the town. You know, he's the local... He is essentially the local lord. And actually, that adds a sort of slightly timeless quality to it, which is really interesting. Although this is modern contemporary written, it doesn't feel very contemporary, apart from those characters who express discomfort that it doesn't. Yeah, there's this very interesting scene quite near the start where Sir George and Colonel Wolsey, Colonel Wolsey is the ostensibly the, the head of the other side, although obviously he and Sir George are actually running the war games together. Um, they have a conversation with Jane, the school teacher, who's the only person who just doesn't want to be involved, basically. And it's this very strange sort of mashing of eras where she feels a bit like she stepped out of the archers and they're from like modern day but also in the 1700s and there's this sort of timelessness to the scene where it's hard to say which one of them's the anachronism yes it's because hutchinson's house is an old-fashioned house i don't care if a few high-spirited kids get their heads banged together it's gone beyond that suppose what happened to me happens to somebody else a stranger a visitor to the village there will be no visitors to the village it's been isolated from the outside world. No one can enter or leave. You can't do that. Can't I? It's been done. Something that's kind of mentioned but it isn't really picked up on is somehow this idea that this is a an annual thing that the village do. So they make a big deal of the fact that they're going to burn someone as the Queen of the May, which is just exactly out the Wicker Man. But this isn't really a plot, because it, because it, you'd think that would be the culminating event for the Malice, but actually then they're like, oh, it must be the battle, which is that. And it's not clear, if it, is it like the, the Doctor doesn't know about the burning? But then that never really pulls up. Yeah, so there is the only real flaw I would say the episode has is that it needed one more editing pass, because it has this kind of dual threat climax in episode two, where the actual action of the episode is building towards the May Queen ritual, but what the Doctor and Jane are worried about is the final battle reenactment. Yes, it's just odd. And I actually would go, I would go slightly further. I agree that it needs one more editing pass. I think if you view this whole series as a one-episode, New Who episode, I think it could be a two-parter. If I was going to write the second half to the awakening i would really strongly consider having some 16th century uh, 17th century scenes that's interesting i think that no see for me part of what makes this so unique is that they never do that that it's all contemporary oh, that's interesting. and that and that the past is sort of more and more being these sort of past historical attitudes are being pulled through by the malice but you never go back the other way and that's part of what gives it its feel to me fine i absolutely appreciate that then but i still think there is a case for a second episode just to give some of the strands more room to breathe well they kind of lampshade it in the final scene but for a story ostensibly about tegan visiting her grandfather she never gets to speak to her grandfather no indeed her grandfather spends all his time with Turlo. In some ways, if you were, if, if we were going to new herify this, you know, I feel like we do this bit occasionally. We don't need to do it for every episode, but this one certainly, not just because of the crack in the wall, although that crack looks exactly like yeah, the crack. Yeah, it really does. It like, it, like it, exactly like it. it, it to a to an extent that I wonder if they 
Right, so before I'd even rewatched, before I even started rewatching this, I scribbled down the crack in the wall series five etc. And then as I was watching it, when that crack first appears, I went, "Oh, hang on, oh, hang on." That was Stephen Moffat had this episode in his mind, right? That is the crack. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's fascinating. If you had uh, Amy and Rory instead of Tegan and Turlow, yeah, no. So this is what you do, right? Series five. Instead of Amy's choice, you just pick this up and drop it in there. They go back to Ledworth. That's it. Boom. It's there. It fits. You, ha- you have to do so little work. You, don't, you lose some of the character stuff of Amy's choice. So that could be written in. Well, I mean, it would be na- like if you now had Amy goes back to Ledworth to see a friend of the family, that's where you would get that character stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um... In contrast to Tegan goes to visit her grandfather and doesn't speak to him. Right, which actually, you know, that, so that doesn't happen. Um, yeah, and then the Malice would just be using the crack to push through. But but actually, the image of the Malice through the crack is just very similar to the Atraxy through the crack in episode one of series five. Actually, I think the end of that episode of series five, seeing that all of the Atraxy is less scary... I think part of it is the way that a crack reveals or bespeaks something hidden, but you can't see the whole of it. You know that, like, Stephen Moffat as well would specifically include, like, a joke about, oh, it's yet another devil. It's it's yet another inspiration for the devil. There'd be a knowing Moffat joke about that. And also, I think the image of the... 17th century characters in the contemporary town is the kind of thing that would get a, like Stephen Moffat would have a big chuckle writing that in. I think you 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 probably have a bit of timey wimey stuff with Will. There'd be some implication. I don't know quite know what it would be, but there'd be some kind of implication that something now only exists in the future because Will's had this experience in the past or something. I think he'd make it so that Will was somehow the ancestor of Hutchinson or or, or um, the ancestor of. Tegan's not it wouldn't be Tegan's grandfather but you you know because they've gone to the village to meet a relative of Tegan in this and so if it turned out that they had ensured Tegan's bloodline in in a sort of circular right exactly yeah yeah um also all the like protracted burbling of psychic energy and psychic vampire and stuff is very modern who they do love a bit of psychic energy these days oh yeah absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. it's it's this felt like a modern a modern who episode more than anything we've watched so far i mean i think it's more accurate to say that modern who feels like what this was doing more often i mean that's not a universally true yeah yeah as i say i think it's a really good episode um i just had fun like I, there was no point in this when i was like oh come on yeah, as, as there was a little when we were watching The Mutants where, you know, there's a lot of recapturing going on there. And this is similar to The Mutants in a way that basically the action is just a series of escapes and recaptures. It's not entirely true, I think, because of the presence of the Malice. There's no analogy to the discovery of the Malice and The Mutants. Right, no, no, but that's what that's sort of what I meant, is that in a purely mechanical way, in terms of, like what are we filling this scene with? Why can't we just move to the end point? It's, oh, they've been captured and they've escaped and they've been captured and they've escaped. All, all their transitioning between, oh, they found a secret passage and now they're going from A to B. Yeah, it's that running around or being locked in a room. And yet it feels very different to a lot of others running around and locked in a room, Doctor Who, because there's just this presence. The malice doesn't even have to do anything. It doesn't chase them. It doesn't cackle and laugh it doesn't even speak it's just there and it's making everyone go steadily more and more mad 
So I want to talk a little about the influences of this because, you know, I read the works of Susan Cooper's Darkest Rising sequence and I read a bit of Alan Garner. Oh, Alan Garner, definitely. And do you know what I mean? And, it, and a little bit, and Deanna Wynne-Jones, Deanna Wynne-Jones. I'd thrown further back, actually. I'd written down uh, John Wyndham. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, it reminds me a bit of Robin Jarvis, actually, who does this sort of something which is very English setting, but dark evils being uncovered. Um, all of these stuff, I think Robin Jarvis' stuff actually post-dates this, but I suppose what point I'm going to make is that this very much felt positioned in that tradition, where in some sense, well, actually, and what's notable though is that is more of a fantasy tradition. Although this story is nominally science fiction, I would say, genre-wise, this is fantasy, much more than it's sci-fi. And actually, fantasy is not quite right. No, this to my mind, and the reason that I pulled this out when you were saying what you were interested in next, is that this is 1960s horror. Yeah, obviously the Wicker Man looms large over this. I mean, it essentially isn't quite the Wicker Man plot, but like the Malice is one of many Doctor Who uh, villains to possibly be an inspiration for a depiction of the devil. Um, join the queue, mate. But, you know, uh, <laughs> it's like, how many devils... <laughs> But but uh, there is a, actually that makes sense in the context. They, the Doctor finds an engraving, and it really matches with that thing you were saying about the history coming back. The Doctor finds a local engraving in the Church of the Devil, and it's the Malice. Uh, something else really reminded me of, actually. Have you been to Alton Towers? No. Okay, well, so I'm going to reference an Alton Towers ride, uh, which I promise will be relevant to any viewers. <laughs> uh, for viewers who are listening to this but aren't from the UK, Alton Towers is one of the big theme parks in the United Kingdom. It's built on the grounds of Alton Towers, which were a private estate. But one of the rides is built into the old mansion itself, called Hex, the Legend of the Towers. The story the ride tells is that during the restoration of the towers for the theme park, something was uncovered, a dark branch, which is basically cursed and contained a spirit. And then at the very end, the entire room rotates 360 degrees until the what it looks like the entire room flips upside down and you see a gigantic face out of branches glowing in the floor that's the final effect of the ride and you just escape and then the exit walk around back to the rest of the park is through the, the bits of the ground that aren't really developed so they're like they're just kind of ruined ruined mansion basically that face and that whole feeling actually absolutely is what the malice reminded me of and that was a very formative experience actually as a as a child and it, it's from that same tradition of horror embedded in kind of english folklore in the english countryside oh it's folk horror folk horror is the literally the phrase yes but but a specific kind of british fear of parochial villages of this idea of like oh, they're a bit closed off and they don't do things like we do them. Yeah, fear of parochialism, fear of villagers, fear of the countryside, all of those things are kind of packed in here. Folk horror, I mean, I mean, it reminded me of, if you've ever seen the fantastic A Field in England, which is a, a, a weird and surreal film that I would recommend. I adore Ben Wheatley. And I have that on DVD, and it's one of his only films I haven't watched, but I would definitely say also Kill List. And obviously there's a Doctor Who connection there, because Ben Wheatley directed Deep Breath. I've not seen Kill List, but A Field in England is specifically set during the Civil War. And I think interesting, because the Civil War is not something you see covered that often. You know, it doesn't feel that familiar to me. Mm. Well, it was my first exposure to it. There's a Biff and Chip story where they go into... 
You know the painting, uh, When Did You Last See Your Father? It's a famous folk painting. Uh, no, I haven't seen that before. I do know the phrase. So it's set basically in a royalist household during the English Civil War. The parliamentarians are taking over the house and they're questioning the boy about where his father is, where the implication is he's hiding in the house. So there's a Biff and Chip uh, book, which I read when I was very young, uh, where they go into this painting. I think in general this this felt like, almost nostalgic in the sense that it felt like the kind of books that were sort of the back of the library and had been gathering us there in the 70s and 80s. Right, I absolutely get from this a very nostalgic vibe. It taps into a lot of things to do with place and folklore and horror and witchcraft. In particular, um, no, no, but nobody has ever, ever heard of this series of books. But there was a series of books at my school called Tim and the Hidden People. But it was all about roaming around British geography and the psychogeography of the place. I was going to say, but we're getting quite close to... to if, at some point we're going to mention Mark Fisher and the Weird and the Eerie and that's it. I think I know exactly the kind of thing you mean. But that's that's what it is, isn't it? Like, again, the malice doesn't speak. The malice doesn't move. The malice is just the, the genius loci, the spirit of the place. I'm trying to remember the distinction in The Weird and the Eerie that Mark Fisher makes between weird and eerie. The malice is weird, I think, rather than eerie. I think the distinction is, is the weird is the unknown and the eerie is the hauntingly familiar. And actually, this story contains elements of both. The thing you call the malice was on board the Harkle probe. Oh. And I see what you mean. It's, it's still here. Hmm. Doctor. That wasn't there the other day. So, the fifth doctor. This is the first time I've officially met him. I've seen a few clips and things, and actually, of course, this isn't the first official Doctor Who thing I've seen because I've seen Time Crash, which was probably my first exposure to seeing the Fifth Doctor. Written by Stephen Moffat, no less. Indeed. But yeah, so I I like him, you know? I just like him. He's obviously, like, boyishly charming. He has a pleasant open face, I think is the phrase. Yes. Every time Terence Sticks describes the Fifth Doctor in a novel, he has a pleasant open face. He does have a pleasant open. I mean, it's not inaccurate, you know. And, and he just has this slight, not quite naivety, but yeah, he's looking at the world with a little bit of wonder, which is quite cool. He is my favourite Doctor. He's your favourite? Yeah, my favourite. Peter, Peter Capaldi, Peter Davison. I couldn't put a paper between sure, them. Sure. But I certainly, he, I feel like Peter Davison is sort of my doctor like i say i like my brain eventually went to this because you'd said you wanted to see a horror inflected davison episode yeah. but i don't think this gives you the best sense of davison as the doctor yeah no i mean i can absolutely believe that i'm not saying oh now i've seen the awakening i completely understand. but you know i just i i did get a sense of him and i Liked it. He said uh, Braveheart, Tegan, which I actually know I know as his his slogan, or he says it a lot. And then there's a sort of slightly archaic uh, out-of-timeness to the Fifth Doctor. Not that he dresses weirdly. Although he does have celery on his lapel. Well, he does have celery on his lapel. And he does dress weirdly, but the point is, he doesn't dress alienly compared to Six or Seven, who dress as a dress. Well, I, I would say that the Seventh Doctor looks more normal, to be fair. 
I think if you saw the seventh doctor walking through town, you wouldn't react. Whereas if you saw the fifth doctor walking through town, you'd be like, where's that man wearing an Edwardian cricketer's costume? Right, Edwardian cricketer's costume. He looks anachronistic. But the fourth doctor, for instance, doesn't look anachronistic. He looks odd. Right, gotcha. I wouldn't see someone dressed as the third Doctor and think, why are they wearing a historical costume? It's interesting. That's a division in Doctor costumes that I had never considered before. But actually, you you can really split the Doctors like that. Weird or anachronistic. Again, this is the weird and the eerie. Right. Right. So eight is anachronistic, for instance. First Doctor, anachronistic. Eighth Doctor, anachronistic. Fourth Doctor, weird. Sixth Doctor, weird. Nine and ten, actually, neither. Well, yeah, once the show comes back, it's a bit of a different kettle of fish. The Tenth Doctor's costume is quite an oddity in... (laughs) Or rather, isn't an oddity, it's just a suit. And it only becomes a Doctorish costume through its association with David Tennant, really? The the, the suit plus the converse, I think, are quite iconic to the Tenth Doctor. And that is kind of what, what he's weird about it. Eleven is more classically anachronistic. Yeah, I, but again, he steals his costume from a hospital in a no, Pertwee McGann styley. Right, exactly. I think that actually the most Davison moment in the episode is the very final scene where he's complaining about being bullied in his own TARDIS. Yeah, that was... It's very endearing, you know? He's just like, I'm just being... <laughs> Fine. <laughs> but he's friends with these people, you know? Peter Davison's doctor has a lot of detractors who say, oh, he's he's weak, he's wet, he's ineffectual. And to, to my mind, they've always missed the point, which is that he gives everyone enough rope. Yeah. He, he hangs back and he hangs back and he lets things progress and he lets things progress. And then at the crunch, he always pulls it back in. He never lets people take advantage of him. He's just, like, he's passive, but he is not ineffectual. He's patient. But he's always... That patience bespeaks, to my mind, that he is a more in-control doctor than the likes of Tom Baker. Or Colin Baker. Or definitely Colin Baker. Yes, I think he's a very... He feels a very virtuous doctor. Yeah, uh, I agree with that as well. I'm not going to say morally good, because I think the doctor always has moral quandaries, but just... Quite. He is not a doctor who is at home or comfortable with darkness, which is what makes it interesting that his stories, his era, got very dark. Like in this one, he's trying to... And succeeding in talking Sir George down when Will throws George to the malice and... George gets killed perhaps needlessly that's quite typical for this era and it's particularly effective because it's a doctor who is not a dark doctor like Baker was before him or Baker is after him yeah in some sense he reminds me of a little of 13 in that way not just because they both have blonde hair yes um i agree but i think 13 gets a lot of stick for being passive but she's pacifistic which is different when the woman who fell to earth came out i identified it as feeling very sawadian and this is what i meant this is sawadian who that we're watching here is sawad a person or eric sawad was the script editor who added a lot more death and destruction and stuff to Doctor Who. Yeah, I think the teen is also a Doctor Who. She has darkness in her, but she, she just doesn't like it. So, Peter Davison's Dalek story, Resurrection of the Daleks, not a very good story, in my opinion. Bit boring. It's got some interesting moments and a couple of interesting things about it. But to my mind, the one moment in it that is an absolute standout moment 
that only works as well as it does because it's Peter Davison is when he is overcome with guilt and anger that he didn't stop Davros in Genesis of the Daleks. And he goes, no more. He picks up a gun. He marches through the whole space station that we've seen thus far to the room where Davros is and just walks up cold-bloodedly, puts the gun to Davros' head and goes to just assassinate Davros. And he can't do it because he's a doctor. But for a few minutes, he is completely of the mind that he is going to cold-bloodedly murder Davros. But it's that line, I think, from... I think it's Terry Pratchett, although he might have been riffing on something older, um, about how a good man is the most terrifying thing. Which also, I think, is very relevant to Matt Smith, A Good Man Goes to War. Yeah, the, the person known Pratchett is Captain Carrot, who, I would argue, is not unlike Five. I mean, I mean, he is a hero. Do you know what I mean? Like, he feels archetypally a hero, even though he doesn't do that actively heroic thing. I mean, it's, it's, there's probably a whole discussion to be had about the degree to which Pratchett does or doesn't influence, just because Whovians tend to be Pratchettians in, yeah, the, in, in a British nerd circles. And Adams as well. It's all a bit cyclic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. One, any one of them is a gateway to the others. Precisely. There's a morality in Pratchett, which is actually not beyond critique, but I would say that there is a certain kind of nerd, and I would probably count myself among it to a degree, who develop their sense of right and wrong in part from reading Pratchett. Yeah. So Terry Pratchett, again, is an author who does this sort of psychogeography, magic in the world, parochial villages have their own traditions and their own little microcosms, especially with the witches. Yeah. And he is pastiching earlier authors who did that genre but he also brings genuine material to that genre. Yes, absolutely. Which I think when Doctor Who is at its best, it's also working in that dual-coded vein of a pastiche of the genre that is also genuinely committing to that genre. So the Hinchcliffe and Holmes hammer horror Tom Baker stories are a pastiche and a genuine take at the same time. Yes, I mean, I think it's one of the reasons why uh, the Agatha Christie, Russell T. Davis episode worked really well. I need to revisit that because everybody but me likes it quite a lot. And I've only watched it once, but I didn't get on with it. So I, I re-watched it recently after having only watched it the first time it was around. And the first time I saw it, I was like, mm, not sure about this. The second hand now, with the virtue of hindsight, a little bit of nostalgia, but also a really deep, only deepening my massive appreciation for mystery as a genre. But the, the interesting thing about that episode is it is, is, is in the genre of an Agatha Christie story, while also being a story featuring Agatha Christie. It's wonderful. Um, so that's because it's not the first time, like, you know, it felt like, yes, we, all, we already saw all of this with The Unquiet Dead. The Unquiet Dead already invented this, and you're doing it, and you're not doing anything new with it. I think it. I think it's a different thing. Uh, it, uh, one of the joyous things about that episode is is the fact that literally almost every other line they reference an Agatha Christie book. And one of the real fun things is sitting there with a tick list of Agatha Christie's titles, and every time they say, "That's the thing that I don't like. It's too knowing." Well, it's very funny. It's, it, it's a comedy episode, right? And I don't like the ending with the her book survive until the year Bill and T6. I don't like that level of venerating individual figures as great in a 
objective way. It's definitely gone very, very, very wrong with the Shakespeare Code's veneration of J.K. Rowling. Uh huh. Yes, indeed. And let's not forget, Agatha Christie wrote a book called Twelve Little Dot Dot Dot. Yes, indeed she did. And Agatha Christie books are deeply problematic in a large amount of ways. She was quite anti-Semitic in that upper-class English way, which was very common at the time. Yeah. Agatha Christie is absolutely not a figure beyond criticism, and it is ridiculous that Doctor Who insists that she she sort of survives unaltered to the year. You know, it's like, yeah. what does that say about the society's future? Yeah, I absolutely agree. We're we're getting off the topic slightly, but yes, I I think Doc, I think I do agree in general that Doctor Who is really great when it it knows what it's doing and is pastiching but also committing to. Sort we're sort sort of on the same topic after you'd said the thing to me about horror episode and then I was thinking like gosh there isn't much horror in Davison and that's weird because there's so much horror in Tom Baker and I was thinking about genre fiction and how Doctor Who sort of often is a pastiche of genre fiction and how I was actually like mm, the Davison era is the one era I don't think that's actually true if you said to me like what genre is Davison I couldn't give you an easy answer whereas if you said to me what genre is Tom Baker I'd say horror yeah I mean I think um in general um Doctor Who's great. It's a genre show. Doctor Who is not literary, or whatever the equivalent is, but but it, it very effectively moves into almost any... It can move into almost any genre for a little bit. There's some. It does better than others. Now, I respect that you can't really comment on this by notes of the fact that I specifically picked the genre fiction episode out for you to watch. But the weird thing that I think I realised about Davison when I thought about it is that Davison has far more scripts that are not consciously being a genre than any other Doctor. Yeah, I mean, I think if we had... Because all I knew about this going on was that it was, quote-unquote, a horror. Um, it wasn't what I was expecting. I wasn't expecting folk horror, which is a pleasant surprise. I love folk horror. Hmm. You get a bit of it in the Pertwee era, but it's not something Doctor Who has done a huge amount of. Although, again, getting to its modern comparisons, Jodie has the Witchfinders, which is definitely in a similar vein to this. Charles II in The Witchfinders is in that kind of panto role that Sir George is here, yeah. the, uh, the Darrow. Paul Darrow school of acting. Another line that's quite interesting, actually, talking about history, is, and I feel like this is something we've seen in Doctor Who at least a couple of times, and you see it less in stuff nowadays, but of course at the time it's really still quite contemporary or not 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 contemporary but not the distance isn't as long which is the line about oh well i'll only be following orders that's what they all say or something like that mm. that which has become such a cliche at this like these days right exactly i'm, I'm trying to remember because it comes from the Nure it comes from nuremberg it's, it's the nuremberg defense yes but i have a feeling that it also comes in yeah when they tried eichmann but the the point is um Doctor Who is absolutely a show that, even if it sometimes fails at this, is quite anti-fascist in its instincts. Yeah, and it's one of the reasons that the characterization of Churchill sits so poorly. Right. Like, I think that's what, to, to my mind, that is one of the biggest missteps the show has committed in recent years. Is what is making Churchill a kind of... Grandpa. Yeah, exactly. Churchill has a complicated legacy and was not a particularly nice man. I'd be interested to know when that just following orders thing sort of slipped into fiction because it has become such a cliche. Yeah, I'd love to see any, uh, an examination of the of the use of the trope. The thing I don't know if it slipped into fiction around the time of the Nuremberg trials, which I think it might have to some degree, or if Eichmann and that being in the news sort of brought it out and made it into popular culture. 
I'm sure it came up in The Mutants. Do you know what I mean? It, it is in The Mutants, you know, with um, Jaeger. Yeah, who is just obviously a quote-unquote Nazi scientist. Yeah, exactly. So it's interesting that they then look at the Civil War, which is... Um, there hasn't been, like, tons of internal conflict within England. Normally what we did was we exported it to the rest of the world. Yes, and when you do think about it, you go back further to... Uh, the War of the Roses, although maybe 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 I maybe I just think of that because I'm from Yorkshire. I don't. Well, know. indeed, and so well, am I. Uh, all the peasantry's revolt, maybe. It's one of those things where I want to know if the BBC had a bunch of these costumes lying around, and that's what they used for this. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, like I assume that essentially the Beeb the has had a big case of Civil War costumes, but the English Civil War has exactly the sense that this story needs of kind of people torn apart in senseless violence. Um, I, I think who knows that it shouldn't do it, but maybe it will do in the forms of time. I don't know. I, I was just thinking that um, the Troubles and Ireland and Northern Ireland in general are... Yeah, I could. I have a suspicion that we could see that sooner than later, and it's not a thing that would objectively be terrible in the sense that it would be impossible to do it right. No, indeed. I mean, we look, you, they did names of the Punjab. But I don't think that they would do it right. Yeah, exactly. I think I, I think they would struggle to. I think Demons of the Punjab is generally seen to have been fairly good. No, no, my point is, but that's my point. They said so they did Demons of the, of the Punjab, which are another example of... I can't believe we're talking about British Empire again. It's inescapable because it is, for better or worse, built into the DNA of Doctor Who. Doctor Who is quintessentially British and therefore... Yes, absolutely. I, I suppose one of the reasons I think of Ireland is because uh, the legacy of Cromwell in Ireland is pretty horrific. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting era of history to... And what I like about this is it doesn't mythologise because it doesn't go there, as you say. It's more like history bubbling forward. Yes. Rather than you mentioned the Shakespeare Code before, and that is kind of taking place not really in Elizabethan England, but in like the Elizabethan England of a theme park. Shakespeare, Shakespeare in Love. Yeah. Yeah, of a theme park. Like Doctor Who tends to go back in time in a kind of the past as a funfair attraction. Yeah, although the witch finder more, more or less doesn't do this, or does it less? Yeah, so, no, um, what I was going to say is, like, this doesn't befit it very well when it wants to go back to times that were very unpleasant because they are the least suited to just sort of being an attraction. And yet, at the same time, there's this tension that that is where the drama and the kind of events that have been classically seen as Doctor Who take place. Yes. Um, and I say classically seen as Doctor Who, because I think one thing Chibnall has done is to choose historical moments that are not the ones that you would typically choose for his historical stories. Yes, certainly not choose for the TV show. I know that Big Finish has done a wider variety of... Yeah, but Big Finish has also made 2,000 episodes, so... I think I'm reaching the end of stuff, concrete stuff to say about this episode. Yeah, I think the main points that strike me about it are like this really pronounced sense of psychogeography, folk horror, just the very unique and ominous power of the malice as a villain. And as I say, it terrified me as a child. Yeah, I can imagine. And also the surprising modernity of it. Yeah, it feels like a modern Doctor Who episode. 
And, and like you said at the start, this is Doctor Who. You can show this to someone and say, that's Doctor Who. Yeah, I would say to any listener who's been hearing our episodes so far but maybe isn't really into classic Who, we've kind of spoiled a lot of the story here, but if you want to get into cl- watching classic Who... I think of what we watched so far, I would recommend The Awakening. Yeah, I think this is a great... It's a great transition, I think, for new Who fans who want to get into some old Who. It's got pace, it's got wit, it doesn't look creaky, and that shouldn't matter as much as it often does, but it does. It does, you know, and don't go into this expecting A-star star episodes, but if you want to see some pretty solid classic Doctor Who... Start with The Awakening. I have like a personal bias towards it because we touched briefly on how we got into Doctor Who when we talked about the movie, but essentially the first thing I ever saw was, I think, and it's hard to know when you go back, I was about four, but I think it was the Peter Cushing, the second Peter Cushing movie, Daleks Invasion Earth, 2050 AD, on a black and white TV in a caravan. And then subsequently I saw some John Pertwee repeats. So as with a lot of people. One of my first memories of John Pertwee is the one with the maggots. Then I saw the TV movie on airing. That's the first one I saw on airing. But the first Doctor Who that I bought to watch was a double VHS box set of The Awakening and Frontios uh, in the gift shop of the Van Van Gothen Doctor Who Museum, which isn't there anymore. Cool. So this episode was the first episode that I bought for myself. And the Mouse's big face is the front of the VHS as well. So, yes, I, I, I think it must have particularly embedded itself in like your... Like, uh... stared, stared its way into my head. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The weird thing is, like, obviously, because I say, I guess I say this made such an impression on me on as a child, in Gridlock, when the face of Bo delivers its final message, and it's meant to be sad and... Oh, it's a bit of face of Bo, isn't it? Like, I see the malice. I'm there and I'm like, why is the Doctor sympathising with the dying malice? Oh, maybe that's it. He, he could be... The... <laughs> maybe he's actually Captain Jack. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to watch next week. Next week. Um, have we already decided? I can't remember. I don't think we have decided. Oh, no, yes, we have. Yes, we have. We're going to do Genesis of the Daleks, aren't we? Oh, oh, is this a week? Fine. Quite an obscure story, this one. Yeah, it's not one that's really entered entered the mythology. Right, so there's nothing of note happens in it, really. You know, it's got it's got a giant clam in it. You can't go wrong with a giant clam. <laughs> you can't go wrong with a giant clam. And Tom Baker, he's... um. No, he's he's the most forgotten of the Doctors in many oh, ways, yeah, I think. Yeah. No, exactly. Uh, so next week we're visiting the most forgotten of the Doctors in his most forgotten of stories. Really, the only thing anyone remembers is that clam. It's just the clam. It's only the... Next week is going to be Wait, a solid... We just, but I think that's true. Like, honestly, they even make a joke about the clam in The Magician's Apprentice. Right, there we go. So that is... <laughs> Okay, so tune in next week for a long discussion about a giant clam and maybe some other stuff about the morality of genocide. This has been Relative Digressions. I've been Renner. I've been Felicia. And thank you for listening. And I think the only thing left to mention... Oh, yeah? ...is that really the only reason that Sir George got carried away in this story is that he was acting with malice aforethought. So I think the reason that joke doesn't work is because I didn't realise until I looked up on the wiki that it was spelt malus with a U. It's spelled M-A-L-U-S. I just thought it was called it was called malice. And I thought that just wouldn't be a pun. <sighs> Mute ants. <laughs>
Relative Digressions is a 2020 production by Renna Robson and Felicia Barker. You can find us on Twitter at WhoDigressions, on Facebook under Relative Digressions, or email us at relative.digressions at gmail.com. The music is Sonic 1.0 by Sonic, S-O-N-N-I-K, with additional sound from Red Sky Lullaby and Luffy. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in the future. I promise this is going somewhere and it's going to be relevant. We're not going to cut it.